So this time last year, almost to the day, uh, Jennifer and I were able to take a trip to New York City for Christmas time, and it was awesome. Uh, we went to a Broadway show, we saw the Rockettes, we went to Central Park, the Rockefeller Tree, Macy's, Times Square, the whole deal. We did it all. Everything there at Christmas is designed a certain way. It's all bright, it's all happy, everything is in lights, the bell ringers are dancing on the sidewalks, music is in the air pretty much everywhere you go. And it's, it's just for me, it was a dream. I love that stuff because I love Christmas and the whole vibe around the Christmas season. I live for it. I just love it. But there's a threat, of course, when we all kind of rush headlong into Christmas right after Thanksgiving. I know we're all there with so much busyness and so much kind of in-your-face red and green, the music, everything. Y'all, and we know this because we, we, we warn ourselves, certainly as Christians, we warn ourselves every year that when we run full speed into Christmas, we, we might easily miss the depth and the sweetness and the significance of Christ and His birth. And it's not cliche to warn ourselves about such things because it, it's true. We, it's, it's very easy. Charlie Brown tried to warn us back in the 60s that if we commercialize this thing, then we might lose the meaning of it altogether. Well, this is one of the blessings of Advent. Advent is a word that means coming or appearing. And it's in this season leading up to Christmas that, of course, as Christians, we celebrate the birth of Christ. But it's also a season in which we look ahead to the return of Christ. The coming of Advent is not just the celebration of what has come already, Jesus in the manger, but what is yet to come, His return. He is coming again. And so we live in this wonderful and sometimes very frustrating and difficult middle that we have the hope given to us, which is sure and certain. Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen again. And yet He's coming to establish His righteousness once and for all, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we wait. We wait for His promise to be fulfilled. We're waiting on the light of Christ to dawn again on a darkened world. We're waiting for the blessed hope of His appearing. And so it's important that we slow down, that we take inventory that we don't rush into joy to the world right away. And we don't, at least not in church, because we're just beginning now this season of Advent. So what I want us to do this first Sunday of Advent, I want us to revisit one of the great prophecies of the coming of Christ. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. And one of the dominant themes, something we don't really like to touch on so much this time of year, but we're going to see it in the Scripture, is the theme of darkness. It's the darkness into which God's promise is spoken. And this is a truth about Christmas that's easy to miss and maybe hard to, to reckon with. But y'all, the Christmas story takes place in the dark, literally and figuratively. It was into darkness and obscurity that Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem in the middle of the night. And much more, it was into a world of sinners living far from God, living in the dark, without hope. That's the world Jesus was born into. We see in the Scripture that the light has come into the darkness. That's what Christmas is. And so that's what this great prophecy in Isaiah 9 is all about, which of course was given and written centuries in advance. The larger context here in Isaiah is judgment. 
there's a, a great deal of present and promised judgment that Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf to these rebellious people of Israel. But it's right here couched in the midst of words of judgment that the promise comes through the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 1 with me. God speaks through Isaiah and says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, as Isaiah delivers this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel was headed toward disaster. Everything is going off the rails. The Assyrians would soon come in and overwhelm this part of the country. They were going to take them captive. And this was God's judgment for Israel's sin and rebellion. This was not an accident. God, in some very real sense, was sending the Assyrians as his instrument of judgment over his people who were stiff-necked in their rebellion against God. And what's more, this land, this northern land, would never recover its former glory. That was part of the promise. This region was going to become a melting pot of peoples and races and cultures, both Jew and Gentile. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, to the Israelite who had taken root in the promised land, that was a sign of condemnation. To have the other peoples of the earth enter in and in a sense take over and intermingle with us, God's chosen people, that was a sign of God's judgment that was almost for them too much to bear. Any place where the Gentiles dwelled in the Israelite mind was under a curse. And therefore God has surely forgotten us and left us to rot in the darkness. That would have been the implication for them. But then God speaks through Isaiah concerning a day after that one, a day yet to come. We just read it. But later on, God shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, if that sounds familiar, it might be because the New Testament and the Gospel picks up on this promise and shows us the direct fulfillment of it. So in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew doesn't leave this up to our imagination. What exactly does God mean here about the light shining in the darkness? No, the, the Scripture tells us. And I want to show you from Matthew chapter 4 how Matthew connects the dots for us here. This is verse 12. It says, when, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. 
and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if there was any obscurity at all in Isaiah's prophecy about the light, Matthew makes it abundantly clear. The light is not a thing, not a power. The light is a person. The light is a whom. Jesus Christ. Matthew says that when Jesus turned His face to Galilee, He did it in fulfillment of this prophecy. God has made His light shine in a dark place. And y'all, as it turns out, this area of Galilee is where Jesus spent most of His earthly ministry. This is where He performed most of His miracles. Most of Jesus' disciples were Galileans. So a place that was thought to be under God's condemning curse has now become the showcase of God's grace and His glory. A place shrouded in darkness and thought to be forgotten. The light has dawned upon them and God's grace has come once and for all. But y'all, what I want us to see today here is that what happens in Galilee, the promise given in Isaiah, the fulfillment revealed in Jesus, this is the thing that happens to all of us when we come to Christ. What the Bible says about all of us, not just this particular land and place and people, but everybody. We are people who live in darkness because of sin. And our only hope in that case is that a light would dawn and shine upon us. This is in many ways the central message of the whole Bible. This is how John described the coming of Jesus into the world. At the beginning of John's Gospel, we're told this, in Him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is called not just the light of Galilee. He is the light of the world. For everyone walking in darkness, the light has dawned, the light has come. And so, y'all, I want us to look again now, understanding that this is for us too. I want us to see in Isaiah 9 what kind of light we've been given, what exactly is God promising to do here beyond just blessing in general. Specifically, I want us to see how our darkness is overwhelmed in the coming of Christ. And so think with me, y'all, about what darkness symbolizes. This is certainly true of darkness as it's pictured in the Bible. But we can use our own intuition as well. We all know what darkness means at its deepest level. It means lostness, blindness, fear, and despair. Darkness means sin and ultimately death. It's going to take an awful lot of light to outshine those things. And so let's see if God can do it. What is God's promise? Beginning in verse 6 now of Isaiah chapter 9, here is how the light will dawn. For a child will be born to us, the Lord says. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So think about what God is foretelling here through the mouth of Isaiah. God is saying, gloom and anguish are coming indeed, but then a great light. The gloom and anguish was deserved. The people had earned their judgment through their sin and rebellion. But the light will be unearned. The light is God's promise, irrespective of what the people do. It's not repent first, and then God will consider sending a light. The light is baked into the promise. It's here already, because this is God's grace revealed in advance. And the light, the scripture tells us, is going to have a face and a name, and he will dwell among you to overwhelm your darkness. I just mentioned a few of the afflictions of darkness that have no human remedy. We all know that they are there. We all feel them and struggle with them, but they're not going anywhere as far as it's up to us. Remember what I just said, lostness and uh, fear, despair, sin, and death. How is God going to overcome these things through the sending of this child? Well, let's, let's just take each one in turn. When we talk about lostness or blindness, to be lost in biblical terms means we're far from God. We're alienated from fellowship with Him. This was Israel's lot because of their own undoing of the covenant. And this is the default position of all humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinful and we are ignorant. We're not just, um, it's not simply that we do bad things, but we are ignorant of God and His goodness. And therefore, we don't even know what we're missing apart from Him. We're in the dark. But now we see the light. A child will be born to us, the promise goes. A son will be given to us. Now, we know that's Jesus. He's the child. He's the son, right? But I want you to notice, besides just the identity of the child, it's the nature of his coming. Do you notice the language God gives us here? The child is born to us, given to us. That's significant. The answer to our lostness, our alienation from God, is not new and better religion or more information or more initiative if we would just get our act together and try harder. No, the only answer is not in us at all. The answer is that God would initiate, that God would come. A son must be given to us. That's the promise. And that means that God has come to find us. God has taken the initiative. Jesus has entered in to our lostness that he might rescue us out of it. This is why when the Apostle Peter speaks to the Christian church about our identity, who are we as Christians, he says this, we are people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are a people no longer in the dark, but in the light because of him. Y'all, if, if you, for any reason at all, if you feel lost, if you feel far from God, I want you to know that here at Harvest Church, at least, we don't hand out maps 
on Sunday mornings. That if you're really serious, you can find him. Here's how you get there. That's not the Christian faith at all. We don't get to work. No, we simply proclaim the good news of what God has already done. A Savior who has come into the dark with the express purpose of seeking and saving the lost. You don't have to go out and find him as if he's hiding from you. The scripture says he has come for us. Receive him. He's been given to us. So lostness has been cured. We may be found because Christ has come. Now let's consider the the darkness of fear and despair. And I couple them together. They're like cousins. They go together. Fear and despair. Y'all, at the time of Jesus' birth, if you've been around church, you know this. We talk about it every year. At the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God had been effectively silent for 400 years. After the finishing of the, the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, there had been no prophecy, no new books of the Bible, no angelic appearances. We can only imagine how despairing the people might have become at that time after so long of sensing that they were in the dark and God was no longer speaking. Israel was now just a a shadow of her former glory. The Romans were firmly in charge at this stage. There was plenty of cause for fear and despair. But see again in verse 6. Unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God will send a son, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, y'all, that all by itself right there, that is incredible news. I don't know if you've noticed. Issues with government. And I'm not just talking about our government. Any human government. That given enough time, and y'all, I'm, I'm pretty proud of American democracy. I think we got it right, as right as we can get it. And yet it's inevitable, because we're human, that all human forms of government will spiral into insanity and chaos if given enough time, because we are sinners. We are consumed with mistrust and anger and selfishness and all the rest. Even at its very best, human forms of government are prone to fail and fall short. And we still have it better than the people of Galilee. They're under the the thumb of the Roman Empire. We've got it much better than they did. But fear not, they're told, and we're told. Don't despair, because the government will rest upon the shoulders of God's Son. The child born in the manger will one day rule the nations. He'll rule the earth, and the task will not be too much for him. There will be no threat or challenge to his rule because he is God, and there will be no doubt concerning his goodness and grace because he has laid down his life to save us. Everything that Jesus carries on his shoulders, he will carry with perfect love and perfect justice, and therefore we have nothing to fear. And his name will be called, we see it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We could dedicate a whole sermon to each one. Let me give you 45 seconds instead here. Okay, let's consider each term just very briefly. Wonderful counselor means that Jesus graciously, tenderly, joyfully leads us into all of God's truth and wisdom. He counsels us. 
He's patient with us. He's wonderful in that way. Mighty God means that as tender as He is as counselor, He also rules with all divine power so that no evil can thwart Him or even contend with Him. There will never be a threat to His throne. Eternal Father means that forever Jesus will care for and provide for us as though we were His own children. We will always be entirely safe and secure under His rule. He will not rule with a fist of iron, but with an open hand, scarred as a revelation of His love for us. We are of His household. We belong to Him. And then Prince of Peace means that He will restore and reconcile all this broken world. Jesus reconciles us to God, first and foremost, and also to one another. We may have peace on earth. Those who call upon the name of Jesus will live in perpetual, eternal peace forever because He is the Prince of Peace and He's called us by His grace. Y'all, uh, we talked in, in, uh, in children's D group. I was with the second and third graders this morning. Some things we just, we feel like we have to see to believe. They're just too good to be true. Some things. And this is maybe one of those. Because we look at the world as it is, and we see what the Scripture promises it will be, and those two things seem like opposite ends of the magnet. They just don't want to touch. It's entirely natural for us to look at the present and the future and to feel fear and despair, our livelihood, our nation, fear for our children and the world that they'll inherit. It's natural to feel this way because we're not in control of it and we know that within us we don't have the answers. But the light that invades the darkness has a name. He is a person who cares. Notice Isaiah says his name is singular, but then he gives us four names. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. Is that a grammatical mistake? No. Because the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will encompass all of these things with perfection, with effortless love. He is all of these things at once. These are not different parts of who He is, and He picks one out periodically to show us this is who He is in totality. And therefore, we do not despair. We trust in Him. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so fear and despair are so very natural to us and reasonable. There's a lot to fear and despair over, but not if we belong to Jesus. Not now, and certainly not in the days to come. And then lastly, y'all, we have the, the, the darkness of sin and death. And again, I couple these together because they go together. Sin and death, y'all. Death reigns in this world because of sin. And this is the greatest form of darkness by far. And before we discuss the solution, I, I think it's important for us to be honest about the problem, and I try to do this in some measure every single week when we gather. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that darkness and sin and death, those are problems out yonder, but not in here, not at Harvest Church. We're nice. We've got our lives together, more or less. The darkness is a problem, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's definitely bad out there, but as long as we're hunkered down in here, we're okay. Y'all, we can't fool ourselves that way. Darkness is not somewhere outside of us, merely. That's true. But our greatest problem is not the darkness that's out there, it's the darkness in here, it's in me. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, 
But men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's me too. And so how will God redeem not just a world generally in darkness, but how is God going to redeem people who love darkness, who prefer it? Well, the answer is given to us here, Isaiah 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Y'all, we see in that promise right there, that's a prophecy of power declaring that Jesus will sit on the throne over all creation. But we have to understand, if we, if we know the Bible at all, if we know God, God is not interested in power for its own sake. He's not interested in putting people under His thumb simply to show how powerful He can be. When it says there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace, remember what kind of government we're talking about here. This is not just an increase in power and authority. It means that both now and into eternity future, there is going to be no limit to the kind of heart and plan and purpose that Jesus brings to the table. And so it's not just an increase in justice and power and glory, it's also an increase in grace and kindness and mercy, because that's who He is. Y'all, I hope you know this about God. There's never going to be a time, ever, where God looks at us and says, fresh out of grace, y'all, come back tomorrow. It just doesn't happen as if He had limits on how gracious He can be. Y'all, even a million years from now, beyond our ability to fathom, but, but we'll be alive in a million years, we'll be in the presence of God. There's never going to be a time, even then, when we're going to be kind of like walking around heaven and we're going to find the limit, the boundary line, where He's just not just and good anymore. We've reached the limit of all that He can be. It won't happen. Because God is not limited in those ways. What Jesus has come to accomplish, this profound promise that we're reading, it has no limit. We're told that He will establish and uphold His throne with justice and righteousness forever. Now, on one hand, that, y'all, that clearly means Jesus is going to rule with justice and righteousness. That's good news. But that alone does not solve our problem, does it? Y'all think about this. If I'm a sinner alienated from God, rebellious, and lost in the dark. God's justice and righteousness are not comforting to me because if God is just and righteous, then I'm going to get what I deserve, and that will not be good. Something has got to happen for the just and righteous God to receive lost and rebellious sinners. And that's what Jesus has come to do. The light that is invading the darkness This is what Christ has come for. To express God's love and righteousness and and justice and power and grace all at once. Not separating them out, but revealing them all in the person of Jesus Christ. So what Isaiah 9 does not tell us directly, Isaiah does tell us eventually. I'm going to cheat a little bit here, okay? As the pastor, I get to do that. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 53, just a handful of chapters later, we get the answer to how Jesus Christ, in all His justice and righteousness, is still somehow going to receive rebellious sinners to Himself. In Isaiah 53, listen to these words. 
But he, that's Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the most incredible thing there ever was. How does Jesus deal justly with our sin as the mighty God, the just and righteous one? How does he deal with it? By becoming sin for us. By humbling himself to serve us, to take our punishment in our place. How has Jesus dealt with the finality of death? By dying himself on the cross. Jesus, the mighty God, became a little touchable, killable baby so that he might do for us what we could never do, what wouldn't even enter our minds to do for ourselves. And so, y'all, let's reckon with this because it doesn't compute unless God pieces it together. This promise of the Son who's born, who will be so mighty and great and gracious. Y'all, you realize this, that never in 33 years of his life, never one time did Jesus ever sit on a throne. Uh, I'm not sure how many times it talks about Jesus sitting, sitting on the mountain to speak and so forth. The best we ever get is when he sat on a donkey. Y'all remember that? He never sat on a throne. He came in a manger. He carried a cross. And it was on that cross that he conquered our sin. It was in the, through the cross and the resurrection that he shows forth his divinity and his kingship and his power. So that all who believe in him, all who place their trust in Jesus, we may never perish, but may have life everlasting. And then and only then through that cross did, did God raise his son from the dead in victory over death in the grave, and that's a victory that we now share by faith in Him. And so the darkness of sin and death, the greatest of all darkness, has been vanquished by Christ because He passed through them for us. He took on our sin. He died the penalty of death for us so that we might have life in Him. Lostness and blindness, fear and despair, sin and death cannot overcome the light of the world. And so the last little line in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read, verse 7, seals the deal. We'll close on this. It says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Y'all, that word zeal means ferocious passion. God doesn't save you because he has to. He doesn't let you in the doggy door in the, in, in the back, you know, as a token of some sort of pity he might have for you. No, he is passionate in his love for us. He is so committed to our salvation that he would make the promise, not only centuries in advance, but he would make the promise to a people in a world who had done nothing at all to earn it or even show potential for it. This is not a payback plan. This is God's promise accomplished by his zeal and passion 
because he really loves you. He said it would be done, and he did it. He sent Jesus for us. And so when Jesus says this in John chapter 12, I hope we take this to heart. This is what has been done, and this is what is now true for us all. I have come as light into the world, Jesus said, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. We couldn't make it simpler if we tried. Everyone who believes in me will no longer remain in the darkness. But Jesus says we have the light of life. What can lostness or fear or despair or sin or even death do to us if we have the light of the world on our side, the one who has given us life? Praise God for the Advent season that Christmas took place in the dark, literally and figuratively. Jesus came as light for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, give us this morning, I pray, a much greater sense, maybe than ever before, of darkness. Lord, let us reckon with this. We don't like to think about it. We certainly wish it weren't so. But Lord, our world is shrouded in darkness and sin and evil. Things, even now, uh, things are not as they ought to be and they're not as they one day will be. And it's okay for us to acknowledge that. Help us, Lord, what's even maybe more uncomfortable, help us to see the darkness in us. That, Lord, I, I, I haven't even made it through the morning with a perfect record. I'm a sinner, Father, and left to myself, um, I cannot approach you. I'm on, I'm on the outside. I'm in the dark. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a very real sense of, of that as, re, as our reality. Um, but a light has come. The light has come. A child is given to us. Those who sit in the land of darkness and in the shadow of death, upon us a light has dawned. The one has come, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save that which is lost. Father, will you overwhelm us this morning, especially if we understand the alternative, we understand what we once were, apart from you, that we will now see and savor and delight and worship you for your amazing grace. Lord, thank you that no amount of darkness, no matter how pitch black, no matter uh, how, how, how much it grips us and perhaps controls us, Lord, it cannot contend with the light of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see and believe the brightness, the sweetness of him and his grace this morning. Lord, if we believe in him, we no longer walk in the darkness. We have the light of life. I pray, Lord, that for us today. Uh, many of us, Lord, I trust, already believe that. Lord, would you help us to take hold of that belief, Lord, more deeply, more sincerely, more joyfully, so that it would just flood our life and who we are, Lord, that all of our thinking and deciding and speaking and doing the way we look at the world, the way we treat others, Father, all of it would, would reflect this bright and wonderful light 
that you have given us because you love us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our light, your Son. Amen.